Hey guys, welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where it's our mission to help you find and follow Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new collection of sermons that will go through the book of Revelation. And it's our hope that uh, you will be inspired and encouraged by the truth of God's word today. So here's Pastor Paul, and let's get right into the message. And uh, man, I'm excited to see all of you guys here. It's been since November, I believe, since we were at least somewhat in the same vicinity. And uh, man, this is just so great. And again, welcome to all of you. And those of you that are watching online, I want to mention, uh, you should have got a text a little while ago that had a link to it, to citybaptist.ca forward slash worship. And if you go there, you can actually download the sermon notes for today. All of I should have mentioned it earlier, but you can download the sermon notes. You can also download the slides if you want. And so, um, you know, normally we've got a screen with all the slides. Those are all available to you. And of course, that'll be pushed to the online as well. Um, but just wanted to say a big welcome to all of you today. And uh, I'm really excited to be here and to be worshiping the Lord together uh, amongst the birds, the chirping birds. That's kind of nice, isn't it? Maybe you haven't noticed that. Good stuff. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and let's go to Revelation chapter number three. Revelation chapter three. And uh, I will mention that there are uh, public washrooms just right there across the alley if you need them. Uh, And so if you need to to go, just so you know, they're right there for you. And um, what a great place, though. I mean, you couldn't really ask for anything better, to be honest with you. Uh, Really, God just really blessed us with this. So it's, it's really nice to have both people can sit outside. We've got lots more room for that. We can do 50 people uh, actually seated like we have, and then we can do 50 cars. Now, there's no way we're fitting 50 cars in here, um, but we definitely can fit 50 people. And so uh, I'm excited. Hopefully some of you that are watching online uh, next week will uh, sign up and, and be here in person. Uh, it's just great just to be together. So we're in Revelation chapter 3, and we're continuing our series through the book of Revelation. And so let's go ahead, and uh, I'm going to read today's passage uh, for you, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll get into the message today. So Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6, it says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead." Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Then verse six, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. Let's have a word of prayer together. Lord, thank you uh, for this time that we have together today. Thank you for your word that's unchanging, that is uh, remain the same, that has been faithful to us. And we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to learn from you. Uh, help us to um, even be able to look past some of the, the distractions of a, of a new uh, building in a different facility today uh, where we're meeting uh, in order to truly hear from you. Again, we thank you for this chance that we have to meet together. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the things that I really uh, enjoy and one of the things that I really like to do is I like to watch behind the scenes kind of stuff. Does anybody else like to do that? I'm the kind of person I love behind the scenes. Uh, I even follow a few Twitter accounts and Instagram accounts that are, uh, they call them, you know, uh, graphics or behind the scenes. And that's one of the things that I really like to do. And um, uh, one of the things that's so cool to me and why I like it so much is that the finished product never looks anything at all like how they filmed it. 
You know, maybe in Vancouver, you've driven by a place and you've seen like just these huge blue canvases, you know, out there in, in some parking lot and people uh, in front of it. And uh, you see that and you're like, what in the world are they doing? And then later on, maybe you find out what movie it is. And then maybe you watch that movie later on or that TV show. And you're like, this is nothing at all uh, like it looks like it's supposed to look like. In the slides that I sent out to you, I actually have a, a little bit of an illustration from one movie, uh, uh, Oz the Great and Terrible, I think is what the movie is called. And uh, there's a picture of a guy and he's completely surrounded by blue everywhere and he's just in a basket and he's looking forward and then underneath it is a picture of the scene that you'll actually see in the movie and it is just absolutely nothing at all and to me what's so cool is you watch the movie and uh, you don't even know uh, what you're looking at you know and you get excited about it you're like this looks so dangerous how did they do this this is crazy and then you see the behind the scenes and you're like oh it actually wasn't all that big this is a guy in a basket in a big blue room is all it was and everything else about it is fake because when you strip away all of the visual effects and you strip away uh, the hundreds and hundreds of visual effects layers and you strip away uh, the, the textures that they add in and the color correction, like I said, all you have is a guy in a basket in a blue room. <laughs> That's all you've got once you pull all of those things away. Now we today... We call that the magic of Hollywood, right? Now, now it, used, it used to not always be that way. They used to actually have to do stuff. Uh, but today we say, man, that's the magic of Hollywood. They can just create these incredible uh, scenes. And, and we understand as, as individuals, we know that, okay, we're being deceived up to a point. You know, like it's not really exactly what it is uh, that we're seeing here. Uh, but it, when it comes to real life, we don't like to, we don't like to live that way, do we? In, in movies, we understand, okay, we're being deceived. Uh, we are okay with it because it, it paints a pretty amazing picture. But when it comes to real life, uh, we want people to present themselves. We want places to present themselves. We want our experiences to present themselves in a very, very real way. Uh, maybe some of you, like me, have ordered something online with great hopes and dreams. Uh, I, I'm kind of a sucker. Jeanette gives me a hard time about this. I'm kind of a sucker for like clicking on an Instagram ad or some ad that's like, oh man, this is going to fix all your problems, whatever it is. I bought this thing that keeps my shirts tucked in. You know, I, I'm not wearing it right now because it was terrible. <laughs> uh, but one time, you know, uh, Jeanette and I are on the, just so you guys know, Jeanette and I are on an ever-present search for the perfect pillow. I mean, we are, we've been searching for years. And so I saw this ad online and, uh, and I'm like, okay, this, this is the answer, right? These are the pillows that are going to fix everything. So I clicked on it and I added uh, some pillows to my card and I bought them. Well, it took over a month to get. That should be your first warning sign right there. Took forever to get. We finally get it and the box was way smaller than I thought it should be. And uh, you open it up and of course they had rolled them into a tiny little ball. And I, I mean, I'm okay with that. You know, uh, we got a, a mattress that came that way and the mattress is great. Just have to let it fill up. So I thought, okay. So we opened it up and we took out the package. First of all, the smell was terrible. That's maybe another sign that I should have been worried. <laughs> the box was tiny. As soon as I opened it, it was like, what is happening in this box? You know, and then they opened the pillows and they were literally half the size of a normal pillow. They were like maybe like this big and they were this thin. And I, you know, as soon as I looked at them, I'm like, I can't sleep on these. There's no way, there's absolutely no way at all that I'm going to sleep on these. I think we put them in a corner. And uh, of course it's difficult to try to get a hold of somebody to return it, you know, and all of these problems. And so ultimately, thankfully I have kids. And so they're actually using them, I think right now, but it was totally, totally not what I wanted it to be. And uh, I was, I was frustrated with it because they had presented it as the answer to my pillow problem. And in reality, it was just more of a problem and just not, not usable at all. So the reason I tell you that is because in our passage today, that's somewhat of the situation when we come to this church called Sardis in Revelation chapter number three. Uh, they presented themselves as kind of a big deal. 
As we'll see here in a moment, they, they seemed, and really the city itself seemed like it was a pretty amazing place. From where we were last week, if you were just to go uh, just southeast again a little bit, you would go about 48 kilometers and you'd come to this town of Sardis. Now, if you got to Sardis, it looked amazing, honestly. The city looked amazing. I mean, it, it was covered... Um, it was well-made. Uh, I mean, there was, there was uh, nice buildings and stuff everywhere. There was an Acropolis that was 1,500 feet above the city, sort of like a sharp out, outward uh, uh, rock point there. And, uh, and up there, they had military stuff and all that. And it was an impressive, impressive city. Uh, but the fact was, is that the city actually was not impressive any longer. It had been impressive for a time, uh, it had been built off of finding gold and silver there in the river and in the surrounding area. But by the time we come to this passage in Revelation chapter 3, the city was really living off of its past glory days. Maybe some of you have a friend like that, that they only talk about high school. <laughs> and you're like, hey, you know, you're 47 now. Maybe we should move on a little bit. That's all they talk about. And, and that's what this city was. This city was, um, this city was amazing to look at. But the reality was is nothing was actually happening in the moment. Nothing was happening right then and there. It was all about the past. They had been defeated a couple of times because they were so confident uh, in their, in their uh, defenses, but yet that led to them uh, being defeated. And so at this point, I, I, another interesting fact about Sardis is that they had reached out to Rome because they were the ones, they said, we want to have the temple to Caesar here. And they were denied. They're like, no, we're not even going to do it. We're going to give that to Smyrna. And so this was a city that had at one point had a lot of wealth, had a lot of greatness, but now basically they were obsolete. Interestingly enough, the church in Sardis reflected that same type of environment. The church in Sardis, as we're going to see, started out really great. And Jesus is going to reveal this to us with his all-seeing eyes, as we've talked about. Jesus reveals to us then the true reality of the church. And so we're going to begin today in verse number one. And I want you to look at point number one, which is Christ's evaluation of the church. Let's look at Christ's evaluation of the church here in Revelation chapter three and verse number one. He says, and unto the angel of the church in Sardis write. Again, we know that's to the, the leadership there in Sardis. He says, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And this is what he says. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Now, Jesus, we of course, is, we know is the one who is speaking here. And rather than following his normal pattern of commendation, remember every single other one, he's like, hey, I know the good things that you're doing. You guys are doing a great job. He kind of jumps right over that and he goes right to his evaluation of the condition that they have right there. Now, the details are not necessarily or are not recorded for us in scripture how the church was started. We understand it. We believe uh, that it was begun, of course, um, as an outreach of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19 talks about that. And, and like a lot of churches, it was founded, of course, out of love. It was founded out of a desire to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But the current state of the church did not reflect their beginnings. The current state of the church, where they were right now, did not reflect at all um, where they uh, were. Because according to Jesus here, do you see what he said there at the end of verse number one? Jesus said, thou hast a name that thou livest and art, say that word with me, dead. He says, you have a name that you're alive. You have a name that everything is going okay, but you are dead. Outwardly, they looked great. If you were to ask people, hey, tell me about the church in Sardis, they would say, oh man, it looks like they got a lot going on over there. It looks like God is doing some great things. But when you strip away the outward elements, 
When you strip away the nice building and you strip away maybe some of the events and the, the programs that they were doing, when you take that all away from them, what we had was a spiritually dead church. There was no work of the Spirit there. There was no um, moving of God within their membership. It's like when you go to a museum and they have these stuffed animals, you know, in their natural habitat. (laughs) And you're like, ooh, look at that tiger. He's hiding there behind the tree. But the whole time you're like, this isn't real. (laughs) This is a stuffed tiger. uh, You know, this is not a a real thing. Everything appears normal. They may be even in an action pose, (laughs) but they're not alive. There's nothing really to be worried about at all. So that brings up a question. How does a church become pronounced dead? right? That's a good question. How does a church get a death certificate? (laughs) How does a church have no effect? How does this happen? How can it be, and I ask myself this question, how can it be that a church uh, that is to be the one that holds up the light of Christ, that is the pillar and the ground of the truth, how is it that they are unable to make an impact for the Lord? The only way that that is possible is if there is an infiltration, the only way this is possible is if they leave their core purpose. If there is a, a, a false teaching that comes in, if there's sin that's rampant throughout the, the congregation, if there's apathy, if there's corrupt leadership that's taken the place of Jesus Christ, whether it's corporately or whether it's individually, that's really what the answer is here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 tells us that it is possible, in fact, to be dead in your trespasses and sins. You are alive, of course, in your body, but it is possible for you to be dead. Uh, you're, you're of no effect even in your trespasses and sins, uh, or sorry, and you being dead in your sins, Colossians 2.13. 1 Timothy 5.6 is an example. Uh, it talk about, uh, talks about a widow who's not living for God, and it says, she liveth in pleasure, is dead while she liveth. So that's the idea of that she's pursuing worldly pleasures, but in fact, she's dead within. And so for us, it's not wrong to assume that if Jesus says the church is dead, the church is dead, right? Like we can assume that. Jesus typically always tells the truth, right? He tells us and we can trust him in that. But what's interesting is that as you learn more about this church from history, you discover that there's even more evidence of its deadness. Now, in in other uh, extra writings and, and, and places that we read about this church, there's really only one person that is prominent from history and his name by the name of Melito. He was uh, a pastor there a couple of decades following this time here where John wrote his letter to this church. And he, he actually was somebody who wrote quite a bit about the book of Revelation. I thought that was interesting. Uh, he wrote quite a bit about it, had some commentaries that he wrote on it. Uh, but he also talked about the church there, uh, there in, in Sardis. But one of the things that he never mentions in his writings, now get this, Melito never mentions persecution in any of his writings when he talks about the church in Sardis. Now think about that for a minute. In all of these other situations that we've seen, there's an element of persecution, isn't there? There's an element of trial, an element of difficulty, an an, an element of of just challenges. But yet this church, we don't see any evidence. There's no writings at all that they had a history of persecution. So what does that tell us? You know what it tells us? I think they were in fact a dead church. That tells us that uh, they in fact were not fulfilling their purpose because why would Satan bring persecution to a dead church? Why would Satan waste time and resources if this was a place that had already committed itself to false doctrine, to uh, corrupted teachers, to corrupted morals, to uh, the acceptance of pagan cultures uh, that we saw uh, in some of these other churches? There's no reason for them to be persecuted because Satan would have already achieved his goal in making them of no effect. 
You know, as we saw in the church in Pergamos, Satan doesn't just use outward persecution against the gospel. He infiltrates. He gets inside. He gets in people's lives. He tries to uh, introduce half-truths, anything that he can do to cause a Christian to fall away from their faith. Because listen to this, a confused, sin-filled, prideful Christian makes far less of an impact for Christ than one that's being beaten and put in jail. That's the truth. (laughs) The ones that are outspoken for Christ and maybe would suffer some persecution, they make a difference. But a person that's just sort of like, ah, you know what, we're going to connect the world, we're going to connect our church, we're going to bring it all together, um, they really have no effect and Satan really doesn't need to bring any persecution. And so when Jesus says, you have a name that you're alive, but in fact you are dead, history also backs that up. And Jesus, of course, we know can see right into the motivations of the church. Jesus can see right into the individual heart, can't he? And for us today, this has got to be a warning for us. This has got to be something that we make aware of, that we take note of today and ask ourselves even that question, am I a dead Christian? Am I somebody who on the outward says, hey, I'm a Christian, but inwardly I'm just, there's nothing spiritually that's going on. Remember, a church is the sum total of its members, isn't it? You can't say that's a dead church, but everybody be alive in Christ. No, it is the total of the members. And so obviously the people in this church were struggling They had allowed a a spirit of fear, of disunity, sinful attitudes and actions, false doctrine to enter in. And we have to be aware of that as a local church today. That's what I love about the Bible is that, listen, we can look at this local church 2,000 years ago and we can draw the parallels to today. And and so we must be aware of those same things. We must uh, fight against that. We must fight uh, and protect the pillar and ground of the truth that is the church. We must allow a holy God and the Holy Spirit to, to be actively involved in our own sanctification, that we would have a desire then to, for God to use us in for his glory. I was thinking about an example, and I couldn't think of any better example than the Old Testament story of Samson, right? And you think of Samson, you know, and you think of, all right, man, the Hulk, right? We think of this guy, and God gave him these just incredible strength. You know, a lot of people, you know, we always imagine he, he was just this totally ripped and cut guy. Uh, a lot of people don't believe that. They feel he just looked like a normal guy uh, because people were always amazed at what he did. And, uh, but if you remember Samson, Samson got hooked up with this girl by the name of Delilah. And you remember the story, Delilah's family, uh, they were trying to get her uh, to find out the secret of his strength. And there was all of this back and forth. And remember, she kept saying, I want you to tell me what, uh, why you're strong. The Bible t- says in Judges 16 that she pressed him daily with her words. Like it was like a, a full court press, right? You know, maybe some of you guys have experienced that with your wives or uh, girlfriends. Uh, full court press, I need this thing. And uh, she was just, tell me what it is, tell me what it is. And eventually, as verse 16 says, it says that his soul was vexed. That means he was annoyed. He was annoyed to death is basically how it described him. His soul was vexed to death. He was just like, I, he would rather die at this point than be convinced anymore uh, from Delilah. And, uh, and so he told her then. He told her where his, his, his strength came from. And of course, she betrayed him there. And they came in and they cut his hair and he lost his strength. He didn't lose his strength though. Remember, not because of the haircut. He lost his strength because of his disobedience to God. He was the same man, he had the same name, but the power was gone. Of course, the result was that Samson was imprisoned. Eventually, he was uh, blinded. Eventually, he was uh, humiliated. And then, of course, it ended in his own death. But here's the thing that was so sad about him. Probably the saddest thing in the whole story about Samson is in verse number 20, where it says that he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. You remember that? He did not know. He said he got up after his hair was cut and he said, I'm going to go, I'm going to fight these guys, these Philistines. And he did not know that the Lord, he did not know that the power was gone from him. 
This was the church at Sardis. They seemed alive. Uh, they seemed like things were happening, but the power was gone. They did not realize that the power of God had departed from them. And this was the evaluation of Christ. He says, you have a name that you are alive, but in fact, you are dead. This was the evaluation of Christ. And this is the evaluation we need to ask of ourselves. This is the evaluation we need to ask of our church and say, listen, do we have that same testimony? Do we just look like we're alive? But in the reality, we're dead. Now, I know it's hard to judge that these days, nor should we be necessarily casting judgment upon one another in that sense. But it's definitely something individually that we need to ask ourselves. Am I just putting on a show? Do I just make it seem like I've got everything worked out? But in fact, I'm dead. So Christ made this evaluation of the church. And then we see, secondly, we see Christ's entreaty to the church. So he, he says, this is how it is. But now he makes an entreaty, makes an appeal to them in verse number two. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Now that's a kind of interesting phrase. He says, there's some things that are not quite dead yet, but they're about to die. Strengthen them, for I have not found thy works perfect. That's the idea of mature before God. Now, Jesus here is speaking, of course, uh, from the basis of his complete and total knowledge of what was going on in the church there at Sardis. And he doesn't hold anything back to them. He says, if you have any desire within you to change, there's a couple things that's going to happen. And the first one, do you notice there? He says, be watchful, be watchful. You say, what does that mean in the original languages? That means wake up. (laughs) He says, listen, church, you need to wake up. You need to pay attention. You need to uh, uh, be alert, arouse yourself, stir your heart, stir your mind, become alert and alive to the Lord Jesus Christ and of course to, to his word. They needed to rethink uh, maybe why it was that they were there, what their calling was, uh, why they were meeting together as a church, why they were claiming the name of Christ. Why were they doing these works in his name? He says, you need to wake up to that. You need to figure this out. Now, the, the word where he says watch is very, very imperative because it is a command of God to a dying church. He says, watch, pay attention. You need to wake up. I want you to also notice that the word watch is in the presence tense as well. What that means to us individually is that we need to be constantly be a watcher, to be paying attention that we are following Christ in our daily life. So when we're faced with a decision, rather than making the decision and then coming back, no, no, we, the first thing we do is we're watchful, right? It's in the moments, in the present tense. I'm alert. I'm awake. Okay, God, I'm faced with this. Lord, what do you want me to do? It's like an immediate connection between us and God. And, and it's like when Paul said to those in Ephesus, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, he said to them, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. You remember that verse? Uh, he wasn't talking about people in a graveyard. He was talking to Christians. He says you need to wake up and Christ shall give thee light. What's the point? They were just sort of living with their heads down. They weren't paying attention. They weren't awake. They were, they were uh, apathetic. Then he also told them to strengthen the things that remain. I think what Jesus was saying here is that not all of the things that they were doing as a church were necessarily wrong or necessarily unneeded, but they needed to take hold of those ministries and put new life into them. And then what's so interesting in there is that he says that their works were not perfect. Now the word perfect in scripture, you know, we look at that and we go, well, nobody's perfect, right? (laughs) Nobody's perfect. Or well, how's that? (laughs) Anyway, there's a way to say it. That's funny, but I can't do it. Nobody's perfect, right? And we say that and we say, well, uh, you you know, well, man, scripture says be perfect. That, That means mature. It means complete. And guess what? We are complete in Christ, are we not? We can be mature in Christ. We can actually get to that point in our Christian life. So he says, none of their works, though, were perfect. None of their works were complete. None of their works were uh, fulfilled. None of their works were finished. What that tells us is that the, the, the ministries that they were in, 
The ministries that they were uh, following and carrying out as a church had never actually been fulfilled or completed, meaning they hadn't reached their full potential. They hadn't actually accomplished the whole point of having that kind of a ministry. Now, that's a strong statement to the church. It would be like me today saying like, hey, church family, uh, I just, uh, I don't know, let's pick a ministry, right? Pick any, children's ministry is a waste of time. You, <gasps> how dare you? All the kids will start crying. And, you know, I mean, how dare you say that, pastor? Uh, that's, that's, that's how strong of a statement it is that Jesus is making. He's saying, all of these things you're doing, they're not quite fulfilled. They're not reaching what they're supposed to be doing. They're not accomplishing what they're supposed to be doing. And he makes that strong statement to them. And then he also gives them a warning. Uh, and within the warning, it gives them the answer to their recovery. Look at verse number three now. So verse number two there, he says, um, I'll just read it again. He says, be watchful, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die for have not found thy works perfect before God. And then verse number three, he says, so he says, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, this is an interesting, this is a key part right here. If you don't watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. First of all here, he says they need to remember, right? How thou hast received and heard. So what does that mean? That means to remember how you received and heard the gospel. You need to remember that first of all. Man, it's great as a Christian to sometimes look back at your life and, and remember what it was like when you first heard the gospel when you first accepted Jesus Christ, when you were first saved. And look back and remember. Remember how it gripped your life. Do you remember what it was like when you first heard the gospel? And man, you had that spirit inside of you that was just like, I got this, right? I want more of this. This is the spirit of devotion, of readiness, of love. You, you hungered and you thirsted after righteousness. And you, uh, you, you desired to serve and witnessing and others. And he says, you need to remember how you first received and heard. And then he says, hold fast. That's the idea of holding tight with a, with a strong grip. Remember those things and repent. So remember the gospel. Remember how you heard it. And then now you need to repent. They had done wrong as a church. They had done wrong as individuals. They had sinned against Christ. They had lost their uh, desire. They become lethargic. They needed to confess their wrong and they needed to get right with God. Haven't you noticed that there's a pattern of repentance in every single one of these? Have you seen that? Repentance is always the answer, by the way. To be, when you're away from Christ and you're struggling, you know, some people say, I just don't feel God anymore. I feel like I'm just disconnected from God there's typically always an element of repentance that's necessary at that point to get right. Whether it's a repentance to neglecting the word, a, a, a repentance to neglecting uh, what Christ has done for you or neglecting the church, whatever it may be, there is a, a, an element of repentance that has to take place. And so he says, you need to repent. And then he says there, notice at the end, you need to be ready for the future. He said at the second part of the verse, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. This is interesting here. Now, he's not talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, just so you know. Uh, that's also described as coming as a thief in the night. Matthew talks about that. He's not talking about that. The thought here is that Jesus, the Lord, will come suddenly to this church, is the idea here. That he'll come suddenly to the church and bring judgment upon this church family. You got to think, when a thief comes, what does a thief come to do? comes to take away from you. It comes to uh, spoil and to remove anything of value. If you've ever had your car broken into, uh, they don't take your air freshener. 
right? Uh, they, don't, they don't take, you know, uh, they don't take the, the rearview mirror necessarily. They are looking for things of value. So what do they take? They take any change they can find. <laughs> they, they'll take your sunglasses. These are all from personal experience. They'll take your Garmin. You know, they'll take, your, uh, they'll take whatever they can get that has value, and that is what they're going to take. They want to take it from you. And God says here, if there is not self-repentance, uh, if there's not self-reflection, if you don't get things right, I will come to you like a thief. You won't even know it's going to come. Nobody, you know, no thief ever texts you like, yo, by the way, I'm breaking into your car uh, tonight at about 2 a.m. Guess who's going to be there with a pipe, right? Or uh, maybe not a pipe, all right. Uh, <laughs> who's going to be there with a baseball bat? That sounds nicer. No, who's going to be there with some friends, <laughs> right? With a spotlight and uh, a camera, you know, I'm going to be there. If he tells me, no, they don't tell you that. They just, they show up. And here's what he's trying to say. God is saying that, listen, unless there's that repentance, he might come very quickly, and that church be broken up, that church be destroyed. It's interesting that Asia Minor that we're covering in this once had a lot of churches. Today, though, is one of the most difficult places to find a Christian in all of the world. I don't know if Sardis was a big part of this, but Jesus here is begging this church to return to him. He's saying, please, would you wake up? Would you recognize the seriousness of not returning to him? And we've got to understand the same, church. We've got to understand the same, that God's grace and his long suffering is amazing, yes. But God is also the righteous judge. God is also uh, not uh, going to allow his children who have been corrected, who have been warned, who have been challenged. He's not going to allow us just to completely ignore him and push him aside and pretend like he doesn't exist. You're his child. He loves you. He's going to uh, correct us. But if there's a constant refusal constant harm that's brought to his name, God will bring judgment. He will correct us. But there's always a time of calling us back to him. You notice that in each of these, there's always a call to repent. What does that mean? That means that there's a time, there was a time frame that they could repent and return to God and make things right. As church was a bit of a mess so far what we see here. The church was a bit of a mess. They were so far from where they should have been. Jesus said, first of all, you're dead. And then he says, you need to get some things right. And God's not giving up on them. And this is what I love. He's not giving up on them. He gives them the opportunity to repent. He calls them to something uh, better. But here's one thing I want to point out as well. Even in a corrupt situation, even in a church that seemed dead, as we're going to see here in a minute, there were still some people who were doing the right thing. There were still some people who were following Christ. And I want to highlight that where we see point number three, Christ's encouragement to the Christian. You know, the way we look at it, we're like, were there any Christians at all in this church? Well, yes, they were. And Jesus gives them some encouragement in verse number four. He says, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Man, that's what we desire. I want God to say you are worthy to walk with Christ. Verse five, he says, he that overcometh. We've looked at that before. That means those that are the true born again. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, this is, this is really great right here because not every believer then is being condemned for their complacency and their compromise in the world. That's what we notice. 
Christ pointed out that there were some that had not soiled their garments with evil deeds. Now, there's a couple different connections to that. We, of course, view the idea of like having it unspotted, right? And there's other verses talking about unspotted by the flesh that goes back to, you know, the lambs as they were brought for sacrifice had to be a perfect spotless lamb. But also in this culture, in the temple worship, the pagan temple worship, you were actually not allowed to even walk in if you had dirt or anything at all on your clothing. So there could be some connections to that as well, but we get the picture. He says, there are still some of you that are walking true. There are still some of you that have not compromised with the pagan culture around you. There are some that are living for Christ and Jesus is trying to give some uh, commendation to them. He's trying to encourage those that are still walking. And he says to them, you are still worthy of his name. Notice he talked about the overcomer, the true believer who could then walk with Christ clothed in white. That means being set apart for God, being cleansed by our sin, made morally and spiritually pure. Uh, The book of Revelation, we'll see uh, white robes mentioned a bunch of times throughout the book of Revelation as we move through it. But the white of the garments here symbolizes the purity that comes from being washed in the blood of the lamb. We sing that, that old hymn, you know, are you washed in the blood of the lamb? And that's the idea. Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? And it's the idea of that cleanness that comes from uh, our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then adding to that, Jesus reminds them that their salvation is secure. He talks about the book of life and your names uh, can't be removed from that because of who you are in Christ, because you are saved. They cannot be removed. And what I love about this the most is that Jesus says he will confess. He says, I will walk with you and I will confess. I will openly acknowledge your name before God the Father and before the angels. How cool is that? Jesus says, even in the middle of this, this just dead church, there are people that are still walking with him. Do you know what that tells us? It tells us that no matter how bad the culture gets all around us, no matter how bad it is, no matter how bad it is your workplace, no matter how tough it is with your unsafe family and unsafe friends, it is still possible for you to walk with God. It's still possible for you to live a life that is pleasing to him. I remember Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus said that he would do this when he said, whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my father, which is in heaven. He says, if you're going to be the kind of person who's going to represent me uh, to this world, then, then I just want you to know, he says, I'm going to confess you before your father, which is in heaven. What an amazing thought that Jesus would present my name, that Jesus would present uh, my salvation and affirm it before the Lord. Verse number six is pretty familiar. You've probably memorized it by now with all of the other ones. He says, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He closes and wraps it up and he says, listen, if you're listening to this, so that's us today, church, at City Baptist Church, under the covers, right? In a lawn chair, in our cars. He says, listen, you, if you have an ear, you had better listen up and hear what he is saying. He is exhorting us to listen to the counsel Listen to the commands and the promises that it contains. You know, at this church in Sardis, they had some spiritually dead people. They had some spiritual zombies roaming around uh, within that church. And they needed to listen to Christ's warning of impending judgment to them. The indifferent believers uh, needed to wake up before it was too late to save their church. And the faithful few that were there needed the comfort in the knowledge of their salvation being eternally secure. So what does that tell us today? Here's what it tells us. It tells us that those, uh, that even for a dead church, let's just sit back for a moment here. Here's what it tells us, that even for a dead church, there's hope. There's hope of life. For a dead Christian, for a Christian that has not been walking with Christ, for a Christian that is far away from maybe where they should be at this point, there is hope. There's hope for you. You can, uh, until Christ returns, you have an opportunity for spiritual renewal. And so that's really what I want to ask today. 
for those of us that are here, are you spiritually dead? Would Jesus say of you, you have a name that is alive, but in reality, you are dead? For those of you that are watching online with us today, would Jesus say that about your life? Are you spiritually dead? You know, as a pastor, there's nothing that really fills my heart with more fear than to read something like this and to ask myself that question. Would Jesus say this about our church? Would Jesus say that we are a dead church? Now, what a warning today. What a challenge to us as believers. And today really is, and this message is a message of self-examination is really what it is. It's a message, there's not a whole lot of good in this at all. You notice that. At least in the other ones, we're like, yeah, they were doing some things good. We can talk about that. But this one, it's all, bleh. it's not going great. It's a struggle. And so for us, when we see that in scripture, when we see a passage and we're like, man, this is tough. What do we do? We need to examine our hearts. We need to remember. We need to repent. And we need to make sure that underneath that outward expression of life that we typically only show to others, we want to make sure that underneath that there is a genuine faith. There is a genuine love for the Lord. It is not just an outward facade. Please don't let the spirit of the church of Sardis be your story. Don't grow so comfortable. And as a church, we should not grow so comfortable with what we are doing and how we've always done things. I'm sure you've heard the illustration of, uh, of the best way to boil a frog, right? <laughs> is you put it in water on the stove and then you just turn the heat up slowly, slowly, slowly. It has no idea it's being boiled. Now, I don't know why you'd want to boil a frog alive. I don't know. That's not typically something I do on a weekend. But if you needed to do it, that's the way you do it. But what's the point? The frog doesn't know what's going on. They don't, they don't, know, they don't know that they don't even notice the temperature just rises slowly until a point that they're dead. That's how it happens. It cha the changes can be subtle in our hearts, can it? The changes can be subtle in our attitude and in our lives. And eventually we end up at a place where we would never expect or never want to be. And so we must be aware of that. We must be aware and recognize and be renewed this morning that, hey, this is my opportunity to get back and to get right with the Lord. This is my opportunity today. You say, pastor, I feel like I'm doing great. Man, awesome. <laughs> that's great. That's great. I think that's fantastic. If you're walking with the Lord and you're like, hey, then be encouraged today with the fact that Jesus, as you confess him before men, he's going to confess you before the Father and the angels. But if there's any part of you this morning that's like, you know what? I do need to repent. There are some elements in my life that I need to get right with God. Today is a day for repentance. God is maybe calling you to get right with him. Repentance is a change in direction, right? It's 180 degrees. It's walking away from where you were and now focus completely upon Christ. And today might be that day for you. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at VanCityBaptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.